Lord Jesus Christ, we are listening. Speak to us so that your servants may hear. In your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So I grew up in Kansas, and every, every uh, Christmas break, my mother would take us to Colorado, and it was a very exciting time for us. We would drive from Kansas City across the plains and go up into Denver. We'd uh, throw our gear down, we'd, we'd rent um, some skis, and it was amazing. It was so much fun. Uh, I remember... Uh, just absolutely falling in love with skiing. I loved to go fast, as fast as I possibly could. I tried to not knock over people, but sometimes that would happen as I just blitzed down the hill. Uh, I, I felt like lightning going down there. And I remember sometimes dodging off of the slopes and kind of going in and out of the forest, you know, and every now and then I'd find a big jump to go off of. It was absolutely great. I loved it. But also it was fun taking those ski lifts up and being able to turn around and see the beautiful mountains out there. We did, there's not too many mountains in Kansas, so being there in Colorado and seeing the mountains was amazing. And just wondering what kind of forces created these mountains. What built them up to be so incredibly high? So we created so many awesome memories on those trips. Uh, but those trips would always come to an end. And we would turn our gear back in We'd climb back into mom's Jeep. We'd drive down the foothills again. And we would start the long journey across the prairie lands. And while it's not skiing in the mountains, I do want to say that there is a subtle beauty to Kansas. If you've ever driven across Highway 70, across Kansas, maybe beauty is not the first word that comes to mind. But you certainly realize how flat it is there, right? It's incredibly flat. I remember sometimes either standing in a field or, or um, well, yeah, usually standing in a field uh, outside of a gas station or maybe at a, outside of a hotel that we would stay in and just looking across the flatness. Did you know that scientists have proven that Kansas is actually flatter than a pancake? Like, it's, it's, it's one of the flattest places on earth. And I remember standing in one of those fields and just feeling like, if the world were to flip upside down right now, I would have nothing to hold on to. I wouldn't be able to crawl into a cave or a ditch or anything like that. And it's just this absolutely humbling experience. And one of the most beautiful sights in my mind is looking across a field of sunflowers and seeing the wind just move them. Or thinking about all the wheat fields that are there and the amount of bread that those wheat provide for our whole country and, and even many other parts of the world. And there's nothing quite like a Kansas thunderstorm. You can see these thunderclouds rolling in, the size of those mountains, if not bigger, and then you see just streaks of lightning skittering across the sky. There is a goodness within the ordinary. There is goodness within the ordinary pastures and fields of the prairie lands. Well, as I mentioned in the, in the opening uh, welcome, this is the first Sunday of ordinary time. And oh my goodness, we have been through some exciting things these past seven months. We've gone all the way from All Saints to Advent, from Christmas to Epiphany, from Lent to Easter to, to Trinity Sunday. We've also experienced the birth of a church. All of these things were first for us. 
in many ways, some of you might be feeling, I, just, I certainly feel this way, of this adrenaline just kind of piercing through me. I, like, oh my goodness, we just launched a church. This is amazing. The past seven months have been absolutely incredible. And so now I'm very excited, and I hope you're excited as well, to enter into a season of ordinary. It's marked by the color green. So you'll see green stoles, you'll see green banners, green logos on the bulletin, lots of green everywhere. But it's also the color of grass and of trees. It's the color of turtles and of frogs. It's the color of new life, of growth, of vibrancy. Green is everywhere. Now, liturgically speaking, or in terms of our our scripture readings, you'll notice that the readings are going to be focusing, the gospel readings at least, are going to be focusing on the teachings of Jesus. You're going to hear things about his sermons. You're going to hear uh, parables being taught on. You'll hear words of wisdom or healings that he's shared about. We'll learn about rest. We'll learn about the beauty of righteousness. We're going to hear about habits of forming godly character. In other words, the season of ordinary is a school of discipleship. This is when we practice the daily walk of being with Jesus. This is where we learn what it's like to do justice, to love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Now, if we're being honest with ourselves, it's kind of a challenge to enter into the ordinary. I mean, as Americans, ordinary is kind of a, a bad word. You know, it's right up there with boring, right? We don't like ordinary. It's hard to be there. And you might even be thinking right now, my life is not in a season of ordinary, Rick. Not these days, at least. As much as I would love rhythm and routines, that just can't even enter my mind right now. Well, I think that there's two big lies that our society puts in front of us that impede us from entering in to a season of ordinary, that impede us from entering into this school of discipleship. And so we're going to spend some time looking at these two lies, and then we're going to look at, some, at two of the passages from our readings this morning and how these address these lies and sort of open up the doors into the school of discipleship. So the first lie that I think our society says that impedes us from entering into discipleship is you are your brand. You are your brand. In other words, image is everything. In today's society, we're encouraged to market ourselves, to market our our own personalities as if they were brands. We're told to buy the right clothes from certain stores. We're told to furnish our homes with the right kind of furniture. We're told to buy clothes um, from the right stores. And you're not just your clothes, but you're also what you consume. Your identity is kind of based off of what shows you like or what teams you root for or what movies you like to watch. And all of these are merely lines in our public profile, aren't they? Now, social media is where this comes across pretty strong, right? This is where we're encouraged to publish our brand. This is where we share our outfits or our our home life and things like that. This is where we're, we're pushed to be curators of our personal brands. So there was a survey done recently of a thousand youth, and it asked them simply, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I'd like to share some of the top 10 of, this, of these things, of what you would want to be when you grow up, answered by kids. So only on number 10 was being a doctor, or I'm sorry, being a lawyer. So sorry, Joel, it's not, it's not high up there. Being a doctor was number six, cool. But all the other things on there were related to the entertainment industry. 
I was shocked that pastor wasn't on there, right? <laughs> but the number one uh, career aspiration of kids these days, this absolutely floored me, is to be a YouTube star. To be a YouTube star. That's it as far as kids are. You've made it if you've made it big on YouTube. Now, while you yourself might not want to be a YouTube star, maybe that's an idea of hell for you, I don't know. <laughs> but it's easy to admit that that is something our society is obsessed with right now. It's easy, and sometimes you might even feel that temptation to, to put yourself out there, to get all the likes, um, the follows, the retweets, you know, all that sort of stuff. Well, this inhibits us from entering the ordinary for a couple reasons. One, we be begin to spend more time trying to impress the masses rather than loving our neighbor, rather than loving those who are immediately before us. And I think kind of an image that captures this well is, and I'm sure you've all seen this when you're at a restaurant, and maybe, you, maybe this has been your family, uh, but maybe you'll notice another family, everyone has their screens out. You know, they're all concerned about you know, looking to the masses rather than the loved ones who are right there in front of them. But also the problem with this, of thinking that you are your brand, is that it gives us the illusion that we are known. It makes us think that we are known. You know, we're putting little pieces of us out there and we're having response from people constantly. And so it makes us think, yeah, these people hear me, they understand me. When in reality, there's no way that a stream of posts or images can truly describe who we are. Uh, when I was a middle school teacher, I remember asking uh, a kid to come forward, and I asked the rest of the group to write down on post-it notes just descriptions of this kid. Of the, of this kid. Now, granted, with middle schoolers, it was a very dangerous thing to do, but these kids were very kind to him. And so at the end of it, I would ask him, now, is this who you are? Does this describe you? Is this who you are? And he was never able to say yes. You know, never at any point are those posts going to fully encapsulate who we are. So what does God's word have to say about this? Well, you may have guessed where I'm going with this, uh, returning to Psalm 139, where David, the psalmist, says to us, or he says to the Lord, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. I just love this image that David is painting of, of the Lord as this father who cares for his children, who knows them. I love my kids a lot. They're not here right now because we shipped them off for the week, but I really do love them a lot. <laughs> They're with their grandparents right now, praise the Lord. But I love them. <laughs> They're great. And they exist because of love. I've watched them learn to walk, to talk. I've, I've watched them explore the world that's around them. And I can tell what they're thinking just by the expression on their face. And I know that when they're mad, I know what's causing them to be mad. And sometimes they'll be so mad at me. I know this is shocking to hear, right? Sometimes they'll be so mad at me that they say that they're going to run away from home. And you know what I tell them? I'll find you. I know where you will hide, and I will find you. It's because I love them, you know? Well, that's like our Heavenly Father. He made us, and he knows us, and he loves us. Out of an abundance of love, he made you. The psalmist continues, You knitted me together. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I was made in the secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. 
So he's painting this portrait of God as, or showing God to be like a master weaver working on a beautiful tapestry, fully knowing the work that he's, that he's creating. So even though you might have tantrums and seasons of frustration, the Lord searches for you and rescues you. There's one of the verses in Psalm 139 that's it's not printed here. We didn't read it this morning, but it's well known. It's familiar. When David says, if I ascend to the highest of heaven, you are there. And if I descend into Sheol, that is another term for hell, you are there. God will go anywhere to find you. So what does that mean for us as people who are tempted to believe that we are our brand? Well, it means that we can stop putting makeup on the idol of self-image. It means that God sees our life and still, even in the midst of that, takes delight over us. And he has, in fact, descended into the depths of Sheol to claim us, to claim that which he has made. And so I invite you all to enter into the pasture of the ordinary because of this. Where there is rest and joy and safety, where your identity is rooted on God himself. You are not your brand You're a son or a daughter made in the image of God. So that's the first lie. The first lie is that you are your brand. The truth is that you're a son or daughter. I think that came off clearly. (laughs) That didn't come out of my mouth correctly, but you know know how it is. (laughs) You know what I mean. So the second lie that keeps you out of um, the ordinary school of discipline is that you are what you make. You are what you make. And I feel this tremendously, especially as as a church planter. But we live in a culture that values innovation and productivity, where you're judged by the things that you make, by the things that are sent out of your computer, the things that come out of your your workshop. Our society is constantly asking us, what do you have for me? What did you make for me lately? Maybe that's what your boss is constantly saying to you. Okay, what did you come up with lately? Oh, you just finished this project? That's great. Here's another one for you. You know, maybe your company is, is completely obsessed about metrics, and so that's all you hear about all day long is how you're performing. You know, that's all that your coworkers want to talk about. That's all your boss wants to ask you about. They want to know your metrics. And maybe it's not rare for your boss to ask you to stay late. Maybe they're constantly making demands on you. I have several friends who are easily punching in 60 or 70 or 80 hours, and maybe you feel that way about yourself as well. Well, another example of, of this is actually within our own homes. I think our kids feel this as well this pressure of of being identified by what you make. You are your grade, I think, is what a lot of kids feel these days. You know, you must pass the test or else you won't have mom and dad's approval or your teacher's approval. You know, there's no grace in standardized testing. It's not like you can go back and correct your answers or anything. And the labels that those tests give us can be oftentimes crippling. I'm 36 years old, no, 35. And I still remember my ACT scores. Like, how crazy is that? Like a test that I took a long time ago is still a number that carries around in my head. So the problem of this, the problem of believing that you are what you make, well, there's a couple problems with this, but one of them is that it ignores the fact that we're sinful creatures. There's no grace that's involved with this. And so the things that we make, the tests that we take, are always going to have mistakes that are associated with them. I'm sorry, but nothing we make is going to be perfect. I know a lot of you are thinking that restoration is perfect. You know, it's just awesome. But guess what? It's not. We're going to hurt each other. We're going to wound each other. It's not perfect. The products that we make are not perfect. 
If you're basing your identity off of what you make, you'll always be disappointed. And the second thing about this, this is absolutely exhausting, right? To be churning out one thing after another. If our, it, it makes it, or I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel as if here in American life, our, our, our life just feels like this never-ending assembly line. We're just constantly putting out stuff. And if that's indeed the case, how will we ever quiet ourselves enough to where we can actually sit in God's presence and hear from him? Just kind of being transparent a little bit, there was a, a line that I heard someone say, and it, for some reason it, it stuck with me. It's just, you're only as good as your last sermon. And I know some of you are probably thinking, oh man, this next week for you, Rick, is going to be a hard one then. <laughs> but you're only as good as your last sermon. And there's, you know, if I look back through the catalog of sermons, there's some that I'm really proud of and there's some that I'm not. But I can't let that define the rest of my week, right? I need to let go of that on Sundays that maybe it's, it's not my A game. And maybe you feel that in your own career life as well. Maybe you're only as good as the last contract that you just had signed. Or maybe you're only as good as the last board meeting that you had or the presentation that you delivered or the last piece of art that you put up on the walls. You know, maybe that's um, something that's plugging you as well. Or if you're a teacher, maybe you feel that you're only as good as the latest round of your students' tests. You kind of define yourself off of, off of your kids' metrics. Well, friends, there is good news for us. And so for this piece of good news, I'd like to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where it says, yes, we are jars of clay. We are made from the dirt. We are cracked human beings. But in in spite of that, God has given us the most beautiful, eternal treasure of all, his Holy Spirit. Better than anything that we could ever craft or make with our own hands, it is God himself who lives within us. The same God who, who brought order to chaos and speaking light into existence, that same God now speaks to us and brings order to our own chaos. And he speaks light and life into our own hearts. His spirit, spirit is radiant. It is beautiful and joyous. And nothing we make could ever compare. So what does this mean? Well, it means that you don't need to be a brilliant builder or author or teacher in order for God to love you. You simply need to be a willing vessel, able to hold your hands out and say, yes, come into my life, Lord. Well, not only is God's spirit beautiful, but it is enduring and strong. Look at what Paul says. He says, we are afflicted in every way. There are arrows that are coming at us from every direction, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but are not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. This sounds like the words of a man who knows his identity is based off of God himself, not off of anything that he has to make. So as Molly and I were talking about these things and and the school of discipleship and the life of the ordinary, uh, a quote from Billy Graham came up. So as many of you know, Billy Graham is a famous evangelist. I, I think we all know who Billy Graham is, right? Okay, great. But he met with countless world leaders, spoke to millions and millions of people. He is probably the most well-known uh, Christian in all the world right now, or at least you know, before he passed. Well, in an interview, he was asked if he ever had any regrets in his life. 
I'm going to read this quote to you. It's a little long, so bear with me. But I, I think that this is, this is a, a gem here for us. But when asked if he had any regrets of his life, Billy said this. When I look back over the schedule I kept 30 or 40 years ago, I'm staggered by all the things that we did and the engagements that we kept. Sometimes we flitted from one part of the country to another, even from one continent to another, in the course of only a few days. Were all of those engagements necessary? Was I as discerning as I might have been about which ones to take and which ones to turn down? I doubt it. Every day that I was absent from my family is gone forever. Although much of that travel was necessary, some of it was not. I, would also spend more t- or I wish I would also spend more time in spiritual nurture, seeking to grow closer to God so I could become more like Christ. I would spend more time in prayer, not just for myself, but for others. I would spend more time studying the Bible and meditating on its truth, not only for sermon preparation, but to apply its message to my own life. So some had said, have said that Billy Graham, and I know this is a, a big statement, but it's, it's hard to argue with, but someone, some have said that Billy Graham was the most influential apologist since St. Paul himself. And I hear this regret of Billy's, and I think about him maybe standing atop one of those mountains in Denver, kind of looking down into the foothills of, of Kansas and kind of the grassy fields there, and wondering what life is like down there. And I don't mean to belittle his work. I mean, obviously God called him to do amazing things. But he admits that there are lessons to be learned from his life. And he's passing those lessons on to you and to me. So in summer, you are not your brand. You are not what you make. You are a child of the Heavenly Father. And through the blood of the Son, you have been bought. And you've been given a gift of the Holy Spirit to hold within you. So it's okay to slow down. It's okay to enter into the ordinary spaces of life, a place of being with your family, a place of growing deeper in love with God our Father. So as I was thinking more about this, um, well, actually, in conclusion, what I would like to do is offer an invitation to you. And I hope this doesn't come across as one more task to check off in terms of our, our American productivity. But I would like to invite you into the daily habit of morning prayer. The daily habit of morning prayer. Again, not as means to earn God's favor in your life or to check things off, but as a way to just spend the ordinary walk or the ordinary time with Jesus. So we've created these little booklets for folks. And a lot of you got one last week. We printed more. They're going to be back there at the, at the welcome table. But this is a practice that Christians have been engaged in nearly since the beginning of starting the day off in the scriptures, starting the day off praying for the needs of the church and for the world. Uh, the way that this particular liturgy is designed, it's about 20 or 30 minutes long, so not long. And it's also one of the most unglamorous, ordinary things that we as Christians can do. But I hope that that habit would ingrain within us a presence of the Lord a habit of seeking to him, of lifting up even our ordinary needs before him. And I trust that God will in fact meet you uh, in those times. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.